the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Education Nation, where we tackle the biggest issues in American education. School is now in session. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Well, if you joined us uh, last week, we uh, have spent some time talking about um, the difference between religious freedom and uh, freedom of worship, and we kind of went through the history of RIFRA, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that later in the show. Um, so when Americans or when America's founding fathers assembled the Declaration of Independence in 1776, Thomas Jefferson famously quipped, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Tragically, several aspects of American history have failed to recognize different people groups as equal to others, as we all know. Uh, but the 20th century has seen, thankfully, some very significant progress. Citizens um, of people becoming and being recognized as citizens on the basis of race, uh, race and biological sex. Um, these were established as equal and legally protected classes of American citizens, thankfully. That's right, Rebecca. And last week, we took a look at some of the landmark examples of race and biological sex class protections. And as these protections aimed at granting equal rights to persons as they were created by God, the end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century saw a dramatic shift in the definition of class protections. Specifically, these protections began to accommodate persons by their sexual behavior and the declaration of gender identity. Mm-hmm. Now, while these most recent class protections seek to protect Americans in their behavioral choices, what what happens when certain behaviors clash with deep-seated religious beliefs and practices that are protected under the First Amendment's Freedom of Religious Exercise Clause mm-hmm. under the Constitution? Well, just over the last few years, many Christian business owners that refuse to celebrate and serve behaviors, not persons, we mm-hmm. want to make that dis- you know distinguished, mm-hmm. that violate conscience... They've been fined heavily through court rulings. Others have had to greatly alter their business practices, and others have had to close their businesses down for good. Mm-hmm. So in regards to religious liberty, another founding father, James Madison, rightly said that the free exercise of religion is in its nature an unalienable right because the duty owed to one's creator is precedent both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. That's an exact quote from James Madison. Again, um, it's precedent precedent both in order of time and degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. Well, just two weeks ago, the Trump administration and the spirit of Madison and the founding fathers 
understanding of religious liberty, they issued guidelines interpreting religious liberty protections in federal law. Last week, as I mentioned earlier, we highlighted three of the provisions, including freedom of religion as a fundamental right, especially expressly, excuse me, protected by federal law. We also discussed that freedom of religion extends to persons and organizations such as Hobby Lobby. Yes. And we concluded with the fact that government may not target persons or individuals because of their religion. Well, this morning, we want to highlight many more of these interpretations to give you, the listener, a deeper understanding of what your First Amendment religious exercise rights really are. Right. And the free exercise of religion uh, under the First Amendment, it includes the rights to act or abstain from action in accordance with one's religious beliefs. Uh, For example, the free exercise clause, that protects not just the right to believe or the right to worship, as progressive politicians would have unsuspecting citizens to believe in mm-hmm. some of that uh, redefining. It protects the right to perform or abstain from performing certain physical acts in accordance with one's beliefs. So when we talk about federal statutes, including the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, if we remember, it was mm-hmm. signed into law by President Bill Clinton. And broadly supported. Yes. yes. <laughs> Both sides of the Congress. <clears throat> Yeah, and it, and it basically it defined the exercise of religion to encompass all aspects of observance and practice. So, in speaking of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, for the record, this was signed into law by the president Bill Clinton after a unanimous U.S. House passage, and it almost passed unanimously in the U.S. Senate. I mean, hmm. by a margin of ninety-seven to three, which is pretty amazing. You know, we know that the Senate historically isn't usually in such great agreement. Right. Um, so what that's, a difference twenty years. Makes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's pretty, pretty incredible the difference that we are seeing now. Right. Amazing yeah. to see bills, you know, come out after they've experienced legislative approval as opposed to the action of executive order right. as well. Which is th- that's one of the reasons why I believe that uh, Trump had sessions do this because. So often what we're now used to in our political climate is executive orders. And then what happens, you just end up with this pendulum swinging back and forth between depending on who's in the Oval Office. And, you know, this RIFRA is the last piece of legislation that we have interpreting uh, our religious freedom here in America. And that was a piece of legislation that was voted upon so unanimously. So it makes sense that we would refer back to that now. Right. And the fact that it hasn't been undone through the legislation process as well, right. too. So. Yep, it's an important detail. And, and, and this RIFRA, it prohibits the federal government from substantially burdening a person's exercise of religion unless the federal government can demonstrate that application of such a burden to the religious person is the least restrictive means of achieving a compelling government interest. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's the thing. When you, when you look at the wording, the verbiage in that statement... Mm-hmm. The proof of burden needing to be upon the government in terms of least restrictive means, that that becomes a slippery slope because when the focus then goes back to, say, behaviors of certain people, this is a class protection. Therefore, yeah, the government does have a responsibility. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when there's such a violent clash between, say, a religious belief and a certain behavior – 
How mm-hmm. can you honestly honor a least restrictive means? It right. seems like the action would then be pretty uh, severe that would be taken. Right. And I and that's actually what we're running into right now. Right. This is why we have a problem in our culture today. And um, this idea of religious liberty is so under fire yes. from certain parts of our culture who would like to say, no, 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 that doesn't apply in this case. Yes. <laughs> and and then, you know, you look at the Constitution, you look at RIFRA, and it says, well, no, it should apply. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this this clashing is, is a difficult place that we're in. It is. It really is. It is. Mm-hmm. Well, so what are some ways that um, a law can substantially burden a person's exercise of religion? Well, if it bans an aspect of a person's religious observance or practice, mm-hmm. uh, if it compels an act inconsistent with that observance or practice, uh, in such such case as the bake the the cake maker who didn't want to bake the in cake Oregon, for in Colorado, the religious and service or provide the flowers for the religious service, um, you know they're saying that they were being compelled to act in a way that is consistent, inconsistent with the observance or practice of their faith. Another situation that would count as substantially burdening a person's free exercise of religion would be if it pressures the religious adherent to modify their observance or their practice right. in any way. It really takes away from the vision of what their business was aimed to do in the first yeah, place. Yeah, exactly. So as with claims under the Free Exercise Clause, RIFRA, as we talked about earlier, does not permit a court to inquire into the reasonableness of a religious belief, which I think is also very interesting because Mm -hmm. that's actually another approach that certain segments of our population are trying to take is they're trying to say, well, this is an unreasonable um, request for you to be able to practice your religion. Mm-hmm. And um, yet, as as Rifro was written, you don't have to prove that it is reasonable. You just have to be able to demonstrate that this is a sincerely held belief. Yes. Mm-hmm. So an example of this is in Burwell versus the Hobby Lobby stores back in 2014. Sylvia Burwell, who was Secretary of Health and Human Services under President Obama, um, was in court then versus David and Barbara Green, the owners of Hobby Lobby. And the Greens own more than 600 of the craft stores and have more than 15,000 full-time employees. So this had pretty large-scale ramifications. Absolutely. Not only internally for their own company, but for other companies that might have been watching this case across the nation. And as part of the Obamacare legislation, the Greens... Uh, devout Christian beliefs were really impacted. Um, and for, in their opinion, the, their Christian beliefs forbid them from participating in or providing access to or paying for or training others to engage in or otherwise supporting any type of abortion causing drugs and devices. So yes. in other words, they did not want to provide any form of contraception that was abortive, uh, abortive causing yes. um, or potentially abortive causing. And um, as part of Obamacare, Obamacare, they were being required to do that by providing the health care. So the Greens argued in court that Obamacare required a choice between violating God's law or the nation's law. And that is clearly a case of the government placing a substantial burden yes. on the free exercise of religion on the owners of this corporation. Yes. So the, the cost that they had... Uh, 
Had they lost. Or had they lost, yeah, exactly. Um, Is that they they would have had to pay $475 million in fines annually for failing to comply with Obamacare. That's a $100 fine per day for each of its 13,000, oh, I thought it was 15,000 employees, or pay $26 million to the government if it dropped its health care plan altogether. So in other words... They're going under. Uh, if, you know, exactly. they're not, if they don't win their case, the company will not survive. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this case, as it was at the Supreme Court, mercifully, on behalf of the Greens, the majority of the court struck down the mandate that would have required the Greens, really, to provide contraceptives for their female employees. Mm-hmm. And so the majority opinion... The reasoning that came from the Supreme Court was that the mandate was not the least restrictive way of furthering, furthering rather, the compelling government interest, which Mm -hmm. was Obamacare. Which I think is an important thing to note, because I think sometimes people, you know, would say, well, wait a minute, why were they able to lean in that direction in that case? But I think what you just said is really important, the least restrictive way of furthering the compelling government interest. They were willing to provide health care and had been providing health care prior to Obamacare. So that was not the question at all. The question, and they're they're even willing to provide contraceptive health care. Right. It was just these couple of different types of contraceptions that can be abortifacient that they were resisting uh, the coverage for. Yes, yes. In imposing the mandate, as we mentioned earlier, it would have substantially burdened the exercise of religion under RIFRA. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the irony of all of this is that a progressive president, Bill Clinton, uh, was used to sign this piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, with overwhelming support. Right, with overwhelming support. I always support. say that That's with right, RIFRA. Because the legislative piece, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, support mm-hmm. that comes underneath. That is liberating religious people today in businesses from not being substantially burdened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we see on one end of the progressive argument of this redefinition of freedom of worship versus freedom mm-hmm. of religion. But yet it was a Democratic president who was used to sign this right. into law. So I thought right. that was really interesting. Yes, it is interesting. And as you said earlier in the show, it shows how much has changed, changed over the last 20 yes. years. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the court also explained that the Greens had a sincerely held religious belief, as we mentioned earlier, uh, that providing for the coverage was morally wrong. And it was not for us, meaning the court, to say that their religious beliefs were mis- were mistaken or insubstantial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the ruling on the Hobby Lobby case was the court's first time of recognizing a closely held for profit corporation's claim of religious belief. And in its federal law protections, uh, the Trump administration clearly does state that RIFRA's protections also extend for these types of corporations. Mm -hmm. Which I think is a proper interpretation. I'm going to just say that, you know, as a host, I know I'm taking a side in this situation, but just because it's large doesn't mean it's not still privately owned. I mean, this company was very clearly a privately held corporation still owned by the family who started it. Mm -hmm. And just because they've grown and been become very successful uh, doesn't mean that it isn't still very much a privately held corporation. It would be just be like any other, you know, private uh, small business owner being able to have some of those same types of rights afforded them. It's just that this is a much larger employer. Right. And so the question then becomes, what is a closely held for profit corporation? 
Well, what that is, it's a private for-profit corporation that has a limited number of shareholders where stock is only traded on occasion mm-hmm. as opposed to a regular basis. Hmm. Interesting. That's the definition. You want to repeat yes, that is. again? What was that again? Absolutely. Yeah, that uh, closely held for-profit corporation is a private for-profit corporation that has a limited number of shareholders where stock is traded on occasion and not on a regular basis, and that's uh, what Hobby Lobby was doing. Well, and and again, it points to the fact that it was really, it's still very much a privately held corporation. Yes. That's the bottom line. Interesting. Well, it's time for a short break, and when we return, we're going to discuss the federal law protections for religious liberty as they pertain to neutral and generally applicable law. Well, welcome back to Education Nation, where we are having an interesting discussion here about the federal law protections for religious liberty. And there has been kind of a pendulum swing uh, since Trump took office and the fact that he had Jeff Sessions go ahead and re, kind of reestablish uh, how they are going to approach religious liberty um, on the basis of RIFRA, which was the 1993 uh, legislation that was passed overwhelmingly and signed into law by Bill Clinton uh, that was for religious freedom. So and it's really sad that, you know, this has to be brought back forth for the public to see. Um, one, you can chalk it up to ignorance on the part of the American populace at large, unfortunately. But also there have just been some egregious offenses uh, that have come against business owners who have a protected constitutional right to exercise their religious beliefs. Yes. And so because of that. This needs to come back back out into the forefront for the American people to familiarize themselves with. And if you happen to miss any of the discussion we talked about last week mm-hmm. about some of those cases in which business owners uh, greatly had to alter their uh, beliefs, or, or rather not their beliefs, but their religious practices in the business place, mm-hmm. uh, you can go back and listen to our show on our podcast. Yes, absolutely. Well, moving on, uh, another element of the federal law protections for religious liberty is that government may not target religious individuals or entities through discriminatory enforcement of neutral, generally applicable laws. So that means the government may generally subject religious persons and organizations to a neutral, generally applicable law as long as government may not apply such laws in a discriminatory way. So, for example, the National Park Service may not require religious groups to obtain permits to hand out flyers in a park if it does not require similarly similarly situated secular groups to do the same thing. So, again, um, that equal treatment under the law is an important element of this whole thing. Um, A more recognizable example is the uh, an example here where the IRS may not enforce the Johnson Amendment, which is the amendment which prohibits 501c3 nonprofit organizations from interfering in a political campaign on behalf of a candidate. And I think we've actually talked about this on previous shows. Yes. But the the interesting way the Johnson Amendment actually made it into law. I mean, it was kind of a bizarre set of circumstances, and yet now it's become kind of this entrenched idea that, you know, 
any type of a endorsement or endorsement talking about right. is not okay. And you know, we've we've actually seen pastors threatened in in the past uh, by. Um, well, actually, I don't know if they've been threatened by the Justice Department or if it was by local groups, but I know there was a case just a little over a year ago of a pastor in Texas that was coming under fire, and there was right. some, I think it was actually a local judge that was trying to demand copies of his sermons just to see. Was that in Houston? He, was that the mayor yes, of the city Texas. of Houston? Yes, it was Texas. It was Texas, and I don't remember who was requiring this of him. And in the end, um, the case, I think, was thrown out of court, thankfully. Yes. Uh, but. But it is that Johnson Amendment that even gives them any thought at all that they could ask for these types of things. And uh, the big issue there is that making sure that if they're going to apply, if courts are going to apply the Johnson Amendment, they have to do so equally and fairly. So between both a nonprofit religious organization and a nonprofit secular organization. Right. So if you're not going to let a church pastor speak out about something political, um, then you certainly can't allow some other nonprofit organization speak out about something political. That is a secular That is non-profit, a secular right. nonprofit, exactly. And because a law cannot suppress religion or religious conduct as its official purpose, courts, they have to be extra careful uh, to make sure that the law is actually neutral and of a general applicability. So neutrality and general applicability, they do connect to one another. So, for example, a failure to satisfy one requirement is likely an indication that the other has not been satisfied. And when I think of this, I think of that case that was just settled and ruled upon in the Supreme Court earlier this year, Trinity Lutheran Church mm-hmm. of Columbia Incorporated versus Comer. Yeah. You know, this was a case, again, where the Missouri State Program they had cited the state's Blaine Amendment mm-hmm. in an attempt to disqualify a religious organization from a right to compete for a public benefit, including a, a grant or a contract, because of the nonprofit's corporation religious character. Mm-hmm. Now, this is neither neutral nor generally applicable. Mm-hmm. See, in the case, the specific grant in question, it was to provide funds to purchase recycled tires. It was really just a secular purpose of just smoothing over the playground right. uh, to merely resurface it. And so the church, it operates as a licensed preschool and daycare, and it has an open admissions policy. Yes, it has religious instructions in its programs, but the money requested was not ever intended to go towards the instruction. That would have been a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. So the Supreme Court, they recognized this, and they held that the Missouri program violated the First Amendment guarantee of the Free Exercise Clause. How? Because the program denied funding for this religious group that would have been used for secular purposes that would not have been denied to a non-religious group for the same purpose. Mm-hmm. I know sometimes this can get sound, it's almost you know mind-boggling to yes. listen to all the language because it's just such fine lines in some of these cases. But the Blaine Amendment that you referred to a little bit earlier, which was the whole premise of the case against Trinity Lutheran as to why they thought they could not have to provide or not not allow them to win one of um, the awards to be able to 
resurface, resurface the playground. their playground. Um, they were using the Blaine Amendment, which again, as we just discussed about the Johnson Amendment, you know, I'd encourage our listeners to go back and listen to some of our previous shows. We we had a whole show, I think, devoted to the Blaine Amendment, didn't we? We did, absolutely. Um, so if, again, if you look back at our podcast, you can find out more information about this, and it gives you more background. The history um, of the, the Blaine Amendment. The history and, and, and why it was even being used in the first place. But that said, um, it's important to note, and it's actually hugely uh, valuable, or maybe not valuable isn't quite the right word, but it's 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 a watershed case in a sense, in the sense that the Supreme Court did come down and rule on the side of the church preschool, yes. saying that, no, the Blaine Amendment cannot be used to prevent this church from receiving these funds. So that was also a significant case for school choice advocates, which we've also discussed on previous shows. Right. Yeah. But that's not the focus of our discussion right now. So we won't go down that. But see, the thing is, is that everything we're talking about, (laughs) though, everything builds. You know, it's a snowball effect of the things that we've spoken about. And we do want to encourage our listeners, if you did miss some of these previous shows on Blaine Amendments and the rise of American progressivism, you're going to want to go back and listen to those. It really helps put a better understanding to all of what we're discussing today. So neutral and generally applicable laws are subject to strict scrutiny under the free exercise clause if it restricts the free exercise of religion and another constitutionally protected liberty, such as the freedom of speech or association. And many free exercise cases actually fall into this category. For example, the 2001 case of Christian Axon Flynn versus Johnson. Axon Flynn was a Mormon and a student in the theater department at the University of Utah. And Axon Flynn sued the school's theater department professors for violating her right to free speech and free exercise of religion. So kind of a double whammy there. Absolutely. And she claimed that the curriculum as part of the actor training program included roles that would have required her to, quote-unquote, take the name of of God and Christ in vain, in addition to having to use other, quote-unquote, offensive words. Yes. So after being reprimanded reprimanded for having rewritten several scripts, which is what she must have done to avoid using the speech that she didn't agree with, Axon Flynn dropped out of school and filed a suit. And after losing two court battles in 2004, the, two, the, the 10th U.S. Circuit Court overturned those rulings, citing that the school did not have a separate right of academic freedom under the First Amendment ruling that free exercise of religious, or religion and freedom of speech had to be applied within the context of the university. So she won. She did So win. she lost her first two court battles, and then in 2004, the 10th U.S. Circuit Court overturned those rulings and actually sided um, with her, which I think is interesting because she signed up in a, um, a, a public university. Yes, and so I'm, I'm honestly, I'm a little surprised at the outcome of this case. I really am that mm-hmm. her own, although I guess allowing her to change the script a little bit, I could see that, okay, is that such a big, is that such a big deal? And I, maybe that's what the court is saying. You know, she's, it's not as though she's asking them to completely change the program. She's just asking to be excused from a couple of those incidents. Right, but the theater department yeah. justified it by saying as part of you know this actor training program, you have to accustom yourself to taking on roles that would not be comfortable. 
yeah. roles that would not be comfortable. So they tried to, in a sense, justify it like stretch yourself, go beyond what makes you comfortable because uh-huh. that's what acting essentially right. is all right. about. And yeah. no, this violated two very important principles of the First Amendment. Yeah. So again, I, I have to be honest, I'm really surprised about the outcome of that case, but but good for her and good for the courts to uphold religious freedom and freedom of speech. And it was three years worth of litigation because I believe it wasn't finally settled until 2004. Okay. Wow. Amazing. Well, we are going to wind up this show and uh, we hope that you'll join Join us again next week because we're going to pick it up right where we left off today. And we'll be continuing uh, this discussion about the federal law protections for religious freedom that were written by Jeff Sessions and put out on October 6th of 2017. So I hope you've enjoyed this show and learned a lot. And join us next week on Saturday for Education Nation. Have a great week. 